The Oracle Network. Network. Look Hi guys, this is Julia, the host of Always Time for True Crime. Each week, I cover a different case about murder, missing persons, or serial killers. My podcast strives to bring attention to lesser-known cases and give you guys some new true crime stories. So go give it a listen. You can listen to Always Time for True Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Stitcher, and more. This is True Consequences, a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico in the American Desert Southwest. Hey everybody, just a couple of quick announcements. First of all, I'm happy to announce that True Consequences is now part of the Oracle Network. Check out all the amazing shows on the network by going to theoraclenetwork.com. That's O-R-A-C-L-3 network.com. And I'm still doing weekly live streams on getvocal.com. That's G-E-T-V-O-K-L.com. Every Thursday night at 8 Mountain, 10 Eastern, I will be discussing previous episodes, doing Q&As, and I will even have some special guests on. Come hang out with me on Get Vocal. Oh, and did you know that I have True Consequences merchandise out there? Get your La Llorona t-shirt or your True Consequences hoodie today. You can find links to my merch store at trueconsequences.com. And if you buy a Justice for Jacob shirt, half of the proceeds go to the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. If you enjoy listening to this show, please rate, subscribe, and review on your favorite podcatcher. True Consequences is listener-supported. To support this show, go to patreon.com slash trueconsequences. To keep up with all my updates, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at True Consequences Pod and on Twitter at True Cons Pod. This episode deals with issues that may not be suitable for all listeners. It discusses issues of child abuse and child sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault or abuse, please call 800 656 HOPE. That's 800 656 4673 and you'll be connected with a trained staff member from the Sexual Assault Service Provider Network in your area. Priests, they are there to help guide you spiritually and help you when you are in need. They're supposed to lead their congregations in spiritual growth. A priest should be able to be trusted with all of your deepest, darkest secrets. And many priests fulfill this role and do it well, but some priests have other motives and desires. Some priests pray on the very people they are sworn to help. Some cause much more harm than good. Today's case is a tough one. What happened near Springer in January 1976 blew the lid off a priest abuse scandal in New Mexico like no one had ever seen. You see, priests in New Mexico and elsewhere had been abusing children for decades prior to this case. The details of this story are beyond disturbing. But the one positive thing that came out of it was that the truth was finally uncovered. Justice, however, is still eluding many of the victims of the New Mexico priest abuse scandal. This is just another example of the failure of the state to protect its most vulnerable and youngest citizens. 
While the church sat idle and did nothing to protect kids under their care, the state turned a blind eye. The issue of child abuse in New Mexico continues to this day, and there is so much more that needs to be done to protect kids. How anyone could look the other way after serious allegations like the ones discussed in this episode is beyond me. How could you live with yourself knowing that you helped enable a monster to torment and torture children? In my mind, those that fail to act are as guilty as the perpetrators of these crimes. Today, I am discussing the forgotten boys of Rancho de los Muchachos and the horrors they faced at the hands of Father Ed Donlin. I am Eric Carter Landine, and this is True Consequences. On the morning of January 27th, a former employee at a local boys' ranch in Farley, New Mexico, was startled by the sound of police sirens and a knocking on his door. It was his neighbor and a former co-worker from the boys' ranch. She informed him that Vaughn was dead. The man was shaken. He couldn't understand how this happened. She told him that the boy, Vaughn, froze to death. He was only 12 years old at the time. And according to accounts of those at the school, Vaughn and another boy named Philip left Hacienda de los Muchachos late in the evening as a means to escape the ranch. Why would he be out in the prairies in the dead of winter? What would cause him to succumb to the elements? Why was his brother, Alan, left behind at the ranch? Why didn't he go with Vaughn? Did Vaughn really leave on his own? Or was he the victim of something more devious? Philip lived. He was hospitalized and he recovered. However, Vaughn, unfortunately, died. But what were they running from? And why? And how did they end up 50 miles from the school in the freezing, snowy January night? Vaughn's death would lead to the uncovering of one of the state's darkest and most horrific cases of child abuse, and it would open up secrets that had until then been locked away at the Hacienda de los Muchachos for decades. The story would show a cover-up and conspiracy to protect a child predator so shocking that it would shake the state of New Mexico and the Catholic Church for years. The boys at the ranch were some of New Mexico's forgotten children. But in order to understand this story in full, we're going to have to go back a bit. Way back. We're going to have to go back to before the tragic death of Vaughn Bishop. It all started with the story of a man named Ed Donnellan. Ed Donnellan was born in 1924 to an Irish Catholic family in Massachusetts. He attended a local trade school and eventually joined the army. He served in World War II and attended seminary once he returned from the war. Sources claim that upon completion of seminary, Donnellan asked the Diocese of Santa Fe if he could work in New Mexico as he wanted to help, quote, Indians. He was soon appointed to a local parish in Santa Fe in the mid-1950s. It's not clear if Donnellan worked with the native community in and around Santa Fe or not. In 1958, he requested to be appointed as a chaplain at the New Mexico Boys School. He was transferred to the school by the Archdiocese, and shortly after starting, Donnellan decided that he wanted to start a proper Catholic boys' home. You see, there was already a boys' ranch in central New Mexico at the time, but it was run by the Baptists. So he asked the Archdiocese for permission to start an all-Catholic boys' ranch. Around the same time, Donlin also started to raise suspicions at the boys' school as allegations of abuse started to surface. 
According to an investigation conducted by the Crossland Institute by Leon Podels, quote, Donlin appealed to the desire of Catholics to have a Catholic environment for boys. Donlin may have already had his own ideas of what that environment should include. Donlin never fully explained why he was dissatisfied with the New Mexico Boys School. One reason might have been the handling of his mail. The superintendent of the school had a policy that all mail with the New Mexico Boys School or Box 38 or both on the envelope will most likely be opened by the office. Donlin objected to this, not unreasonably for a priest, but the content of his correspondence may have aroused suspicion. New Mexico Secretary of Corrections Howard Leach learned that the boys were being physically abused at the Springer School, and in 1970, he fired the superintendent, as well as several employees. Eventually, the Archdiocese agreed to allow Donlin to open up his boys' ranch, but they refused to fund it. He found a location between Clayton and Springer, New Mexico in the near ghost town of Farley. There was an abandoned district high school that was no longer in use. Donlin signed the lease for the property and began to set up his boys' ranch. Now, if you're not familiar with New Mexico, this area is in the northeast corner of the state near the Texas and Oklahoma borders. It's considered to be the eastern plains as the terrain starts to resemble the neighboring states to the east. It's also a very remote and lightly populated area of New Mexico. The rural isolation of the ranch would serve the malicious and devious intentions of Don Linwell. It was the perfect place for him to prey on the innocence of the boys in his care. Like I said, the ranch didn't have much, if any, funding. The diocese did not agree to fund the project. They only agreed to allow Donlin to build the ranch. So he had to go to communities across New Mexico to solicit donations from Catholic parishioners. He would load up a bus full of boys, and he would go to different churches throughout the state to request donations. This was how the ranch was funded. He also relied on the help of volunteers to run the school. There were a few paid staff members, but most everyone else there worked on a voluntary basis. The humanitarian appeal of this ranch from the outside seemed like a great idea. The idea of providing spiritual guidance and support to troubled boys in an area of the country and at a time when they could easily be forgotten, it all looked great on paper. It's when you start looking closer that you realize the hidden danger and the true horrors that these boys faced. There was no loving guidance, except for maybe some of the volunteers. Father Ed was not there for that. He had other, more sinister motives. One of the volunteers was a kind soul named Pierre. Pierre has a memoir out called Secrets of the Blue Door. A lot of information that I have about this case comes from Pierre's first-person account of life at the ranch. I really encourage you to read his telling of the story. It details his journey to find his path and his desire to help support his faith through serving others. I don't know Pierre, but I really respect him. He seems to be a genuine, heartfelt human being. And hearing him talk about how he cared about those boys is really touching. So Pierre was invited to come to New Mexico by a longtime friend. He and his friend had done some mission work together in the past. Pierre was excited at the prospect of working at a boys ranch and helping the priest there get everything set up and functioning. He was handy and artistic so his skills would be a good fit for the work that was needed at the ranch. He packed his few belongings and left the comfort of his Midwest life to do some service work for his church. He really didn't know what he was getting himself into but he was excited to see his friend again and to get to work. When Pierre arrived, he noticed that Father Ed 
dressed in jeans and t-shirts instead of the traditional vestments. He was a giant, towering, and intimidating man, standing at about six foot five. Pierre was shocked to find that his friend David had left the ranch already, and when he asked Donlin about it, things got tense. According to Pierre, Donlin slammed his drink down on the table and said, we will not be discussing this, through clenched teeth. So he decided to drop it, but it was the first red flag that went up for him. During his tour of the building, Pierre noted that the ranch was in very poor shape. There were unfinished walls everywhere, water damage on the ceilings and floors. He knew he would have his work cut out for him. Something that really struck Pierre during that tour was the fact that there was a blue door. No other doors in the ranch were painted this color. And it turns out that was the door that led to Father Ed Donlin's room. Now, Pierre only originally planned to volunteer at the school for two weeks, but he found that he really liked helping and he wanted to do more for the boys at the ranch. He started to care for them and for their well-being. So he informed Donlin of his plan to commit to a full year of service at the ranch after he returned from putting his affairs in order in Ohio. Donlin seemed happy to welcome Pierre on his staff full time, and Pierre felt like he finally found his calling. Donlin had a tradition with the boys. Every new boy that came to the ranch was taken to Springer for a shopping trip. There, he would purchase clothing and new boots for them. It was a happy occasion for many boys, as most of them lived in poverty. It was also somewhat symbolic of the priest taking the boys into his care. Something that Pierre noted was that Donlin seemed to be a strict disciplinarian who did not tolerate any form of disobedience from staff or boys. He started to isolate the boys from their families, according to Podols. Quote, Donalyn isolated the boys from their pasts and their families. In 1973, he proposed guidelines that would severely limit gifts from boys' families. He was upset the parents were not contributing financially to the hacienda, but would send the boys gifts. He said, we do not allow home visits. Donlin convinced the boys that their parents were thoughtless, even mean, or no good to the boys. Where the boy's past was shattered and the future looked dismal, Father Ed took over. A state agency later reported, Father Ed's policy of boys joining the Hacienda family and almost completely severing all familial relationships is diametrically opposed to the agency policy and is detrimental to the boy's place there. Father Ed feels that if parents cannot provide financial support, then parents have no right to the child. End quote. Red flags galore with this one. This type of behavior is indicative of abusive predators. They will isolate victims in order to gain more control over them and their lives. What seems like a harmless shopping trip is the first of many intentional steps meant to groom potential victims into a relationship of trust and reliance. In spite of Donlin's efforts to isolate and manipulate the boys, the staff were all working to build healthy relationships with them. Pierre started teaching art and working with the boys on chores. They began to trust him and many of them even started to open up to him. The ranch soon became well known around the state as a place to send troubled youth who need support. Parents and even local courts started sending more boys to the ranch from across New Mexico. Things also started to get strange for Pierre and the rest of the staff at the ranch. In his book, Pierre discusses how controlling and authoritarian Donlin was. He really never wanted to hear from the staff. He didn't care for their opinions. 
He only wanted things done his way. He treated the boys the same way. He seemed to relish in making them fearful. He had turned to punishing the boys and the staff by withholding food or by limiting the type of food that could be eaten. For example, if somebody disobeyed him, he may declare that for dinner everybody's eating cold cereal. He would force some boys into manual labor as a means to, for punishment, and based on their age and the severity of their transgression, that would determine how severe their punishment would be. Don Lin would often resort to physical punishment and would regularly whip the boys with his belt. Some boys claimed that he would hit them with his belt buckle on their head so that nobody would be able to see the mark. He would, quote, counsel, end quote, boys in his room during the evenings. Staff were not allowed to interrupt these, quote, counseling sessions. And they were suspiciously secretive meetings between boys and the priest. This behavior and toxic environment of isolation and abuse led many of the boys to attempt to run away. Pierre eventually resigned from his post at the ranch, but chose to remain near the property. Donlin's predilection towards isolation and control showed the boys that he was in full control of not only them, but everyone at the ranch. This created a sense of hopelessness for the boys. They had nowhere to run for help. With Donalyn controlling everything, they had little hope of getting help and protection from the other adults in their lives, which led to more and more boys attempting to escape the horror of this priest's abusive clutches. Let's go back to Vaughn's story for a minute. According to many sources, he and Philip were escaping horrific sexual and physical abuse at the hands of Donlin. One of the people working at the ranch, named Tony, claimed to have taken a notebook off of Philip prior to him being taken to the hospital. This notebook allegedly detailed accounts of abuse and why the boys were escaping. Tony claims he handed the notebook over to the police. However, nothing was done to investigate the misdeeds of this priest. And these allegations were shocking. According to the allegations, Donlin would sexually abuse the boys he brought into his room for private counseling. And it had been happening from the beginning. It was becoming clear that this man was using his authority and control to keep his secrets buried. Anyone who threatened to reveal or was deemed as a risk was evicted from the ranch if they didn't leave first on their own. Rumors began to circulate in nearby Springer and surrounding communities, rumors of physical and sexual abuse at the ranch. The issue was brought up to the police as well as the archdiocese. Unfortunately, these allegations were not taken seriously at the time. It was also common practice for the Catholic Church to cover up these types of situations in order to prevent negative publicity. It happened all over the US. Priests accused of molesting children are never expected to own up to their abuse. They are instead moved from parish to parish to continue offending. It's sickening the way these horrible acts were covered up. It turns out there were several complaints to the Archbishop at the time, Robert Sanchez. However, Sanchez refused to do anything about these complaints. And then, he was forced to act after Vaughn's death. But even with that, he still took as long as possible to, quote, investigate. And what's even worse, he chose another suspected pedophile priest to lead the investigation into Donlin. And as you can imagine, that led nowhere. Podol says, Quote, in March 1976, the Colfax County Social Service Agency issued a report about the Hacienda. The cover letter 
to Archbishop Sanchez indicated that, quote, some information and details were omitted from the report. We felt they were potentially harmful and unnecessary in light of your decision. The report, therefore, left out any mention of sexual abuse, but it did take note of the conditions that made that abuse possible. Also, in March 1976, Archbishop Sanchez appointed the Reverend Sabine Griego to help close down the hacienda. Griego himself was accused of abuse in 1992. In April 1976, despite the agency report and even after Vaughn's death, Donlin was still in charge of the hacienda. According to this, it seems that even Child Protective Services, or CYFD, assisted in covering for the horrendous crimes of the priest. And even after Vaughn's death, Donlin was still in charge of the hacienda. End quote. According to this, it seems that Child Protective Services, or CYFD, assisted in covering for the horrendous crimes of this priest. They felt that the allegations would be harmful and unnecessary to mention. What the hell? The Archbishop even went as far as to ask a person who came to him to report this abuse to keep the matter quiet and within the church. Even Pierre made several attempts to report this behavior, and he was largely ignored. The thing is, though, he documented everything. He had conversations with a couple of boys about what happened to them, and he wrote all of it down. He kept meticulous notes about first-hand knowledge, as well as things that were told to him by others. And because he was still friends with Ed's assistant, Tony, he was able to take a walk with one of the boys while Ed was out soliciting donations. This is where he learned of the actual horrors that were happening to the poor boys at Hacienda de los Muchachos. The boys had been told that what was happening to them wasn't wrong, because Don Lin was their father, and he could do that with them. Again. His continued grooming and manipulation of these boys runs deep. Pierre learned that when the boys did not participate in the abuse, they were often punished. Sometimes, they were even punished by being denied food. The boys talked about how Don Lin used money, alcohol, and favors to get the boys to participate in the abuse. In fact, there was one room attached to Father Don Lin's room that was called the skin room. And the reason it was called that was because there were a lot of animal skins lying around on the floor. And the boys liked to go in there because there was a TV. It was the only one in the entire hacienda. If somebody was in Donlin's favor, he would invite them into the skin room to watch TV, to have alcohol, and to hang out with him. Now, what many boys learned when they entered the skin room was that it required them to be nude, or at least in their underwear. And Father Donlin was nude as well. So with this information, Pierre started on a mission of uncovering the truth of what happened at the ranch. He talked to a former resident of the ranch, now a man, to corroborate what the boys he had talked to had told him. What he learned was shocking. Not only were boys given alcohol, they were punished severely if they did not submit to Donlin. The boys were convinced that Donlin was not only capable of murdering them, but he was willing to. He would sometimes sneak into the dorms at night and just take a boy of his choosing into his room to abuse. And there was nothing they could do about it. And they never knew who that was going to be. They were never safe. There was nowhere for them to turn. And they were forced to do unspeakable things in order to survive. 
So this is why so many boys tried to escape the ranch, and why so many of them ran away. They had no choice. There was no one they could trust or confide in, and if anybody confronted the priest, he would just beat them with his belt. If they resisted, the punishment would be worse. Everyone, including the staff, was so afraid of Donlin that the boys were left to fend for themselves. Vaughn's family believes that he didn't just run away and die from exposure. In a recent interview on KOB4, Vaughn's sister claims that she believes Vaughn was murdered by the priest. She feels that it's very unlikely that he was able to wander 50 miles in a freezing January night on his own, without a vehicle. It's hard to know what really happened to Vaughn, but it is clear that the horrendous actions of this priest were the main reasons he died. Whether it was intentional or not, if it wasn't for Donlin, Vaughn might still be alive. It was a senseless tragedy, and when I learned about it, it broke my heart. It's awful to imagine feeling so trapped and so alone that your only option is to run away. These boys deserve better. Nobody should have to endure what they did. So what happened to Donlin? Well, pretty much the same thing that happens to all predatory priests. He was moved again and again and again. He was transferred to different parishes and the problem was largely ignored, not just by the church, but also by the state. He continued to offend and abuse boys for nearly two decades after Vaughn's death. Why? Why was he allowed to continue? How could anyone in authority not act on these serious allegations? And then the fact that he was moved only to offend again and then be moved again after those allegations came up? It's mind-boggling. And this situation is not something that just happened one time in New Mexico. There are tons of cases of boys, of children who were abused by predatory priests. And all of those cases were largely ignored. This was not just an anomaly. This was something that was going on for decades in New Mexico. And the archdiocese was complicit, allowing this to continue by their lack of action. From Podol's article, quote, in October 1993, Ron Wolf notified Donlin that he had received information that appears indicative of the fact that a serious offense against the church has been committed by you. On the basis of this information, it appears that you have been accused of sexual abuse while you were in charge of the boys' ranch. In January 1994, an attorney representing a victim contacted Reverend Ron Wolf, Chancellor of the Archdiocese, and only then did Archbishop Michael Sheehan put Donlin on administrative leave. 1994. The ranch opened in 1958. So nothing happened from the Archdiocese until 1994. Unbelievable. And I continue with the quote. His abuse led to the death of a boy. He was not disciplined for that. But now, he might cost the Archdiocese money, and that called for action. In February 1994, Sheehan retired Donlin and gave him the usual pension provided by the Priest Relief Fund. Another month passed, and Sheehan asked Senior Nancy Kazik to send Donlin a kindly worded letter 
asking him to move from the parish to a location more suitable for his retirement status. Donlin died shortly after. End quote. So, here is Donlin's obituary from his hometown newspaper. Funeral Mass to be held Saturday morning in Holy Ghost Catholic Church. Interment to follow in Pajarito Catholic Cemetery. Visitation will start tonight, December 29, 1994, in Gabadon Memorial Chapel. Rosary to be recited tomorrow evening at Holy Ghost Catholic Church. A memorial mass will be held on January 14, 1995, at St. Bernard Church in Fitchburg, with the time to be announced later. Survivors include three brothers, one of East Hebron, New Hampshire, one of Inglewood, California, one of Fitchburg, Massachusetts, seven sisters, one of Eagle River, Alaska, one, a member of the Sisters of the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin of Leominster, Massachusetts, one of Fitchburg, and one of Aurora, Colorado, one of Avon, Connecticut, one of Lundberg, Massachusetts, and one of Mardella Springs, Maryland, and numerous nieces and nephews. Reverend Edward F. Donlin was 70 and a resident of Albuquerque, New Mexico. He died December 25th in Albuquerque at the home of a friend after a prolonged illness. He was born in Fitchburg, Massachusetts to Edward and Sarah Walsh Donlin, he lived in Fitchburg through high school, moving soon after graduating St. Bernard's High School in Fitchburg. He lived a long time in the Albuquerque area. He was ordained a priest on May 10, 1956 in Worcester, Massachusetts. He served the Diocese of Santa Fe for many years. He also served at the New Mexico Boys School for 10 years. He started the Hacienda de los Muchachos and operated it for 12 years with the guiding principle, the boy who is afraid may be checked but never corrected. Fear checks, love corrects. This principle is engraved on his headstone. He served in the army during World War II and participated in the Normandy invasion, as well as the battles of Ardennes and the Rhineland. PFC U.S. Army ordained priest May 10, 1956, founder, Hacienda de los Muchachos, Gladstone, New Mexico. That's it. That's his obituary. No mention of the horrors that he inflicted on countless boys over countless decades. No mention of his abusive nature. No mention of the fact that he was under investigation not only by the Archdiocese, but by the state of New Mexico. This is a very rosy obituary. It's got to feel like a slap in the face for the people that were exposed to his horrible nature. The fact that Donlin was able to get away with what he did is astonishing. How could he go on without any punishment, or without even the idea of removing him from the priesthood? Why wasn't more done, if not by the church? Then why didn't the state intervene? The church was eventually sued by several people who were abused by priests for decades. As part of the lawsuit, Donlin's behavior and actions were called out. I'm going to read some of the deposition transcript for you here from that case. Quote, the Reverend Ed Donlin was the director of Hacienda de los Muchachos, a boys ranch type program run under the authority of the State Health and Social Services Department. Sanchez said he made a decision to no longer allow Donlin to be a director in 1976 because the state was shutting the program down. Sanchez said he had a number of other concerns and that Donlin denied the sexual allegations when confronted. 
Sanchez said he transferred Donlin from Hacienda de los Muchachos to a Santa Fe parish, but not because of concerns about Donlin's sexual habits. So here is the actual interview. Tinkler, quote, Do you recall blank informing you about the incident where he walked in on Father Ed in the skin room at the boys' ranch and that Father Ed was naked on the furs, lying on his side embracing one of the boys? Sanchez, quote, a very serious statement. I don't recall it from the conversation, or whatever it was with blank. Sanchez testified that the State Health and Social Services Department had responsibility for the ranch. Sanchez, quote, I thought there was no need for further investigation by the archdiocese in view of the fact that I had just told him that his position as director had ended. I had withdrawn permission for him to serve as director of the ranch operated by the health and social services of the state of New Mexico. Tinkler, quote, so you didn't think that there was any further need for investigation since he wasn't going to be at the ranch? Is that what you're saying? Sanchez, I myself am not an investigator. I think the state, being the prime operator of the ranch, also had that responsibility more so than I. He had a board of directors to whom he had to answer for its operation as well. I was a superior, but had little or nothing to do with him and the operation of the ranch. That was supposed to have been operated and run under the authority of the state of New Mexico. Sanchez transferred Donlin to work at Our Lady of Guadalupe Parish in Santa Fe. Later, he was assigned to St. Joseph's Parish in Mascaro and Roy. In 1979, Donlin was transferred to Our Lady of Guadalupe Parish in Taos. The only complaints during this time, Sanchez testified, had to do with Donlin's blunt manner. It's just, it just is insane that the Archbishop in this case, who's being sued by dozens of people, really is absolving himself of any responsibility and there are numerous accounts of people who went to him and asked for help for these boys. So if the state of New Mexico was more responsible than the archdiocese, shouldn't the archbishop alert the state of New Mexico to the fact that there were boys being sexually abused under his watch and under their watch? Whose responsibility is it? Donlin isolated every single adult around these boys in order to ensure he could continue to access them and continue to abuse them. And if Sanchez wasn't going to stand up for the boys, who would? Donlin was one of many priests who were abusing children in New Mexico. And the cover-up was eventually revealed in the late 90s as lawsuits started to pile up against the archdiocese. These priests were all the same as Donlin. They used their power and authority to abuse the very people they were supposed to help and protect. The archdiocese was complicit in covering for and simply moving priests from parish to parish. They were willfully negligent in their unwillingness to address these issues, and it led to more and more children being harmed in multiple towns and cities across New Mexico. What they did, or rather didn't do, is completely inexcusable. They enabled the abuse and horrific treatment of dozens and possibly hundreds of New Mexico children. The church allowed this behavior to continue unchecked and the children were the ones that paid the price.
Thanks again for listening to True Consequences. Follow us on social media on Instagram and Facebook at True Consequences Pod and on Twitter at True Cons Pod. True Consequences is hosted, written, and produced by me, your host, Eric Carter Landine. Thanks for listening and stay safe, New Mexico.